Okay, Psalm 8. I want you to think about something that you have experienced in your life, something that brought awe or majesty to you when you experienced it, the first time you experienced it. But then maybe after a little while, it kind of just became dull. Maybe the shine kind of wore off and it just became something that was normal for you. We've all probably had things like that in our lives. For me, I was visiting the Great Wall. And it's very fitting with our friends here, the Great Wall of China. Um, first time I went to China was in the summer of 2001. I was in college. I went with a whole bunch of other college students. And we went on a trip, took a bus to the Great Wall. You know, 20-plus college students out there just running around, going crazy. And you just, like, you get to the Great Wall, and it's this amazing, just awe-inspiring experience. And it's like everybody, you know, everybody would love to go and visit the Great Wall of China, and not a lot of people get an experience. So you're there, and you're just like, this is amazing. And then come back to the States, and then Lindsay and I moved to China for a year, and I take her, and I'm so excited to go and show her these places that I've been and, and seen, and we go together, and it's, it's awesome. And then we come back to the States, and then we move back with kids, and then we go again, and then family starts visiting, and then we go again, and then, you know, the next time it's like, okay, you know, how, how many more steps do we have to climb, and like, are these people selling things ever going to get out of my face? And it just becomes this, like, oh, we got to go here again, right? And you lose that sense of awe. You lose that sense of majesty, and it just becomes mundane to the point where you're like, yeah, great wall, whoop de doo right? Well, I want to contrast that with a picture of something that just happened to me yesterday. Uh, went, my kids had a piano recital. My oldest five had a piano recital. And the... Recital started with the youngest child who was just learning how to play piano, right? And you're sitting there kind of watching her. You're a little nervous for her, like, because you know she's nervous, and she's just doing this little song, right? And it's great. You're excited. And then they start to progress, right, to the, the kids who are more advanced. To the end where the piano teacher plays two songs that she's been working on. And she starts playing, and it was one of the songs was a song I'm, I'm familiar with, I've heard before. And I just closed my eyes and just sat there. And it was this sense of, of majesty and this sense of awe at how advanced she is and how good she was playing this song. And just seeing that progression from the first kid who couldn't do much to the master, so to speak, and how that sense of awe and majesty grew throughout that performance. And that's a, that's a stark contrast between losing a sense of awe and and a growing sense of awe. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, most of our experiences are like my experience with the Great Wall. When it comes to our sense of majesty and awe at who God is, it's like that. Maybe when we became Christians, we we were just amazed at who God is and how awesome he was. But then the longer we're a Christian, it's just like, okay, yeah, you know, I know the drill. I've, I talk the talk, but I've just kind of lost that sense of, of his majesty and his awe. And it's just become routine. So what is the solution, right? How do we fix this problem? I want to submit to you that part of it comes in the title of this book that we're going to be talking about at our summer conversation. Recapturing the wonder, Recapturing the wonder, recapturing a vision of who God is, of God's 
majesty. And how can we do that? I think we need to see the majesty of God. We need to see his amazingness with renewed vision. And we have a great text this morning that I hope will help us to do that. Psalm 8. Let's go there now. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 8 to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, your name is majestic, and you are worthy of our praise, you are worthy of our awe, you are worthy of our wonder. God, as we come before your word this morning, God, would you open our eyes, would you renew in our hearts a sense of wonder at who you are, of your majesty, of your care for us, that we would see you and know you more pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your sermon outline there uh, on the insert, the back side of the insert, there are four headings there. We're going to be looking at each one of those. The first thing, we're going to be looking at how we see the majesty of God displayed. The first way that we see the majesty of God displayed is in God's name. We see that here in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And if you look closely there, O Lord, our Lord, you'll see that those words look different. Same letters, but one is all capital, one is lowercase in the the last three letters. O Lord, all caps, is the name Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. The the word Lord, lowercase, is Adonai, which means master or ruler. O Yahweh, O covenant God, our master and ruler, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And when it talks about God's name here, it's more than just a name. It's more than just Yahweh or Adonai. God's name in scripture, when it says God's name, it represents God's revelation of himself to his people. In Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moses and Moses says, he tells him to go to the people and say that he sent him. He said, well, who should I tell them is sending me? 
And he said, I am who I am has sent you. That is God's revelation of himself to his people, which is connected to the name Yahweh, the Lord. Here God's name is synonymous with God's majesty. And it carries with it a sense of holiness and a sense of honor. It's not to be used flippantly, which we see in the third commandment. You should not take the name of the Lord in vain. So when we take the name of the Lord on our lips, it should be in praise. It should be in reverence. It should be in respect for who God is. This phrase, the name of the Lord, is used 20 times in the Psalms. We see things like, praise the name of the Lord. Trust in the name of the Lord. Fear the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. Give thanks to the name of the Lord. And Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to tuck that one away for a little bit later. Proverbs 18.10, one of my favorite verses in all of Proverbs. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. I remember a phone conversation that I had with my college pastor, and I don't know what we were talking about, but somehow this verse came up, and I, just, I had recently read it, and it had stuck out to me. I was just so blown away. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, just that that picture of of running to God for safety, that his name is that strong tower. It's an amazing picture of who God is and the power and the majesty of his name. So again, God's name is more than just a title. It points us to who he is and who he has revealed himself to be to us. From Genesis to Revelation, this whole book is filled with The name of the Lord. It's about God and who he is and how he has revealed himself to us. So that is the first way that we see the majesty of God displayed. We see it displayed in his name. The second way that we see the majesty of God displayed is in God's creation. The psalm begins and ends with this burst of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? Not just in America, not just in China, not just in Israel. All the earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. And verse 1 goes on to say, it's not only in the earth, but God has set his glory above the heavens. The earth is filled with his glory. The heavens are filled with his glory. And we're going to be seeing that next week in Psalm 19. Then in verse 3, David speaks about God's majesty from his own personal experience. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Imagine David, imagine him as a shepherd boy being out in the field, laying down at night, night after night, looking up into the stars, into the heavens, seeing the moon and the stars, there's There's no light pollution from all the streetlights. There's no high-rise buildings to, to block his view. He's just staring up into the sky. And what does he see? He sees the majesty of God. And what did he need to see it? 
All he needed was his own two eyes, right? He didn't need modern technology. He didn't need all these fancy telescopes and things. He was just simply in awe at the work of God's fingers. And assuming this psalm is written after David had become king, he's not a young boy anymore. He, I'm sure he had been hardened a little bit by the experiences of life, having people chasing after him and trying to kill him. Read, read a few psalms before this and, and you'll see what David is saying about that. But despite all that, despite the hardness of life and what he has gone through, he doesn't lose his sense of awe and majesty at who God is. He can get away from all the noise, all the things going on around him, and he can look up into the heavens and say, God, you are good, and I stand in awe of who you are. So he has not become hardened and cynical. What about you? Have you lost your sense of wonder? Have we become hardened and skeptical and cynical? I want to read for us from Recapturing the Wonder, the book we're going to be looking at for our summer conversation. Again, I encourage you to to pick up this book. And the quote's a little long, so so bear with me, but please pay attention. He's speaking here about becoming skeptical and cynical about miracles. Okay, this is a really, if you've read this, it's, a, it's kind of a funny story. But he, he's becoming skeptical and cynical at the suggestion that miracles can still happen today. And here's what he says. He says, this, being skeptical and cynical, is my default setting. I am programmed to expect that the world is what I can see, touch, and measure And any thought or idea that runs against that expectation is met with resistance. Programming is actually a great way to think about it. I have learned to see the world in this way. And I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't think I'm alone. I believe that most people experience something similar. A subtle but strong resistance to faith and a skepticism toward anything that veers toward the supernatural. This way of seeing the world is what Charles Taylor calls disenchantment. It's going to be a big theme throughout this book. A disenchanted world has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presences, of spirits and God and transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world where what you see is what you get. It's not a world entirely without God or a world without religion. Rather, it's a world where God and religion are superfluous. You can believe whatever you want so long as you don't expect it to affect your everyday experience. Believe whatever you want about God or the afterlife, but trust in science and technology to explain everything about the real world. We didn't choose to think and feel this way. It's simply the world of ideas we inhabit. A thousand stories told and repeated about how the world works. Christians and non-Christians alike are disenchanted because we're all immersed in a world that presents a material understanding of reality as plausible and grown-up way, as the plausible and grown-up way of thinking. Even people from faith traditions more open to mystery or miraculous works of the Spirit will experience this to some degree or another. It's the way the Western world frames its ideas. 
perhaps to best understand disenchantment, we can look at its opposite, the enchanted world of a few centuries ago. In that world, men and women saw themselves as spiritual creatures, vulnerable to the blessings and curses, to angels and demons, and subject to the god or gods who made and oversaw the world. This enchanted world was part of a cosmos, an orderly creation full of meaning, a place with a purposeful origin and a clear destination, guaranteed by the god or gods who made it and rule over it. At the same time, this cosmos is full of mystery, a place where our knowledge has its limits and an unseen spiritual realm is constantly at work, shaping our everyday experience. Pay attention to this last couple sentences. In disenchantment, we no longer live in a cosmos. We live in a universe, a cold, hostile place whose existence is a big accident where humanity is temporarily animated stuff that's ultimately meaningless and destined for the trash heap. This isn't just a creation versus evolution debate. That's part of the equation. But it's about looking at creation as something upheld by a transcendent God who cares for us, and who has revealed himself to us. Not just as an out there, blind watchmaker who just set things into place and then stepped back to watch and see how everything would play out. This is what David gets at in verses 4 through 8, which I think is really the key to this whole psalm. But before we look at verses 4 through 8, I want to back up and look at verse 2. As we will see that we see the majesty of God displayed in God's image bearers. We see the majesty of God displayed in God's image bearers. And we're going to see this in three ways. The first way that we see this is through babies and infants. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. If you're like me, maybe you're not like me. Maybe you read this and it totally makes sense. If you read this verse, I think it just, it, it's a little clunky in the ESV, the way it reads. And there's, I don't want to get into all the, there's just some weird reasons why there's some interpretive difficulties with this. Um, but when I was preparing for this, I you know, I usually write down the verses and kind of some ideas. I wrote down verse 2. I said, what on earth is this trying to say? <laughs> like, it just, it doesn't come, it doesn't read very easily. I like the New Living Translation, which is a little bit looser of a translation. But on this verse, I think it's really helpful. It says, you have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Okay, you have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. So this idea of the enemies being silenced by the praise of the children is kind of, I think, the the heart behind this verse. And again, remember, this verse is coming right on the heels of the second part of chapter 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. It's talking about God's majesty, God's glory in the heavens. And then there's this sudden shift to babbling one- to three-year-olds whose praise of God is mighty enough to silence God's enemies. 
See what he does here? He goes from, from the, the massive, the unexplainable to the smallest thing that seems so insignificant, but he says it's actually way more significant than we can even fathom. I love what John Calvin says about this verse. He says, So early as the birth of man, the splendor of divine providence is so apparent that even infants who hang upon their mother's breasts can bring down to the ground the fury of the enemies of God. Although his enemies may do their utmost and may even burst with rage a hundred times, it is in vain for them to endeavor to overthrow the strength which manifests itself in the weakness of infancy. Read that last sentence again. Although his enemies may do their utmost and may even burst with rage a hundred times, it is in vain for them to endeavor to overthrow the strength which manifests itself in the weakness of infancy. Now we don't know exactly who the enemies were that David speaks of here, but Jesus quotes this verse in a very interesting interaction that he has with the chief priests and the scribes in Matthew chapter 21. He had just drove out the, driven the money changers out of the temple, and he heals some blind and lame people. And then children in the temple start crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Well, where did these kids learn this phrase? Where did they learn this from? Well, just before this, in Matthew 21, we have the record of the triumphal entry. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the crowds shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in, what? The name of the Lord. Psalm 118. Hosanna in the highest. And do you know how the chief priests and the scribes responded to these children praising Jesus? They were indignant. (laughs) They're furious. Because they hated him and they wanted him dead. They said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what these little ones are saying? They're saying, shut them up, Jesus. I love what he does. Do you hear what they're saying? He says, Yes. Yes. Of course I hear what they're saying. Have you never read? (laughs) Don't you know your scriptures, chief priests and scribes? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Psalm 8-2. And I love that Jesus didn't quote the rest of that verse about silencing the enemies. And I'm pretty sure he didn't need to because they knew where he was going with this, right? They knew who Jesus would have called the enemies if he would have finished that verse. Well, if you've been around here very long, you know how important it is for us to have our kids in the worship service with us. One of my favorite things is when I'm sitting there with my family and my six-year-old Augie comes up. I told Augie I was going to talk about him today. Augie, I'm talking about you. I love it when Augie comes up and he puts his arm around me 
and he tries to sing along the songs that he knows, right? Sometimes he doesn't know all the words, but he knows some of them. And it's just, it's fun watching him try to, you know, sing through the songs. And sometimes he's a little bit out of tune and definitely gets that from me. But the Lord is not only pleased that Augie is singing his praises, but he's actually silencing his enemies through little Augie's praise. He's silencing his enemies through the praise of him and through the rest of the kids in our congregation. This is an incredible truth and an incredible mystery. And I've never thought about it until I started thinking through this psalm. So if I was going to write a little booklet called The Theology of Children in the Worship Service, this would probably be my main text. (laughs) This would probably be where I go to and why I would say it's so important to have our kids in worship with us, our kids singing God's praises with us, even from the smallest age when they're barely able to to get the words out and barely able able to even clearly say what the words are. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge us with this. May our hearts be stirred and may praise be on our lips as we see and we hear these little ones praising God alongside, with, alongside us. As these littlest ones in our congregation sing God's praises, may we see God's majesty as their praises fill our ears. The second way we see the majesty of God displayed in God's image bearers is in God's care for us. I said that verse 4 is is kind of the key to this psalm. Remember David's wonder in verse 3 at God's care, or at God's creation, at the moon and the stars. In light of that, in light of the moon, the stars, and God's majesty, in light of this majestic display of God's glory and God's might, David says in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. These two words, mindful and care, are very important here. Derek Kidner in his commentary says, Mindful has a compassionately purposeful ring. And care implies his action as well as his concern. Mindful has a compassionately purposeful ring, and care implies his action as well as his concern. And I want to submit to us this morning that it is only in acknowledging our own insignificance in God's massive cosmos that we can paradoxically see our significance as those not only made in our Creator's image, but those who are sustained and cared for by our loving covenant-keeping God. And the third way that we see the majesty of God displayed in God's image bearers is in God's purposes for us. In verses 5 to 8, David points us back to God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden to have dominion over the works of God's hands. Talking about all the animals here, we see those listed in verses 5 through 8. And this here is a glorious picture of God's creation, purposes, and his design. And I think we would do well today as the human race to rightly and to humbly acknowledge our favored place in the cosmos as the image bearers of God. 
who have been crowned with honor and glory so that we might reflect the honor and glory of our creator and king in this world. But the hard reality is, for us, is that as fallen and sinful creatures, we often do not submit to God and to his purposes for us. We don't have dominion in the way that he has called us to. We abuse the things that God has called us to have dominion over. But the good news of the gospel for us is that we have a Savior who has stood in our place, who has fulfilled the purposes of God for us that Psalm 8 points us to. So lastly, we see that we see the majesty of God displayed in God's Son. I mentioned to us last week that we are going to be talking a lot about Jesus this summer as we go through the Psalms. And if you get a chance to listen to that, the interview with Dr. Futado, uh, he says one of the questions that people ask him a lot of is, which one of the Psalms are the Messianic Psalms? Which, are, which of the Psalms point us to Jesus? And people talk about Psalm 22 especially. Uh, there's, a, there's other Psalms that make references. Psalm 110 make references to Jesus. And pe- a lot of times his students ask him, which one of the Psalms are Messianic Psalms? And he says all of them, <laughs> Right? All of the psalms are messianic psalms. Now, it's a helpful category for us, the ones that are very clearly talking about Jesus, but all the psalms point us to Jesus. So as we go through the psalms this summer, we're going to be talking a lot about Jesus. But I think in doing that, we do need to be careful. We need to be careful that our, our, our initial reading of the psalm, our first reading of the psalm, is done faithfully in the context of the psalm as it was written, Okay? We don't read Psalm 8 and just jump right to Jesus. We need to look at Psalm 8 in its context as David wrote it. And I I hope we've done that this morning so far. But then, after we do that, we should see how Jesus fulfills the promises in the Psalms. Especially, especially when the New Testament writers explicitly quote the Psalms when telling us about Jesus. And I love the book of Hebrews. Lily, I don't know where she's at. She's not in here. But the other night, she was like, I think I have a new, a new, or a second new favorite book. Uh, and I was like trying to figure out what it was. She says it's Hebrews because she's been reading through Hebrews. I love, we're going to preach through Hebrews before too long. I love the book of Hebrews. But he, the book of Hebrews does this over and over. The author of Hebrews, all 13 chapters have direct quotes from the Old Testament. It's amazing. Not just references, there are direct quotes from the Old Testament in all 13 chapters. If you look at the book of Hebrews, you can actually turn there if you want. Uh, We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2. If you've got the Pew Bible, it's on page 1001. But even if you just flip through the first four or five chapters of Hebrews, half of it's all just indented because it's all just quotes from the Old Testament. And most of these quotes throughout Hebrews are from the Psalms. I love Hebrews, too, because it talks about the supremacy of Jesus, about who he is, how he's supreme over the angels, Moses, Joshua, the Levitical priesthood, sacrifices, the tabernacle. He is supreme over all these things. Jesus is our great high priest. He is our final sacrifice for sin and the only sacrifice for sin. And in chapter 2, the argument is being made beginning in verse 5. 
that God didn't subject the world to come to angels, as he's making this argument that Jesus is greater than angels. And then in verse 6, he quotes from Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It goes on in verse, the rest of verse 8 through verse 9. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So you see what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Now there's, there's some, in verse 8 there, there's some question about if this is talking about us as as humanity, who all these things were placed under our dominion, or if it's talking about Christ. And a lot of commentators think it's, it's actually talking about both, uh, where it says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, meaning man who was given dominion. We don't see everything in subjection to us, namely because of the fall, because we did not fulfill the purposes that God gave to us. But it's also talking about Jesus, and when, when it, in verse 9, it goes on to say, we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, right? We, that when verse in Psalm 8 was talking about us, but then here he says, namely Jesus. Jesus is the one crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, the eternal son of God, the one is, who is superior to the angels and to all the other things that the book of Hebrews lists, He is the one who fulfills the promises of Psalm 8. By taking on human flesh, by being born like us and being crowned with glory and honor just like us. But then it goes on to say, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Keep going if you look forward in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18 says since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, we see here Jesus' incarnation, that he became a man, he became human like us. He became our high priest. The high priest, we've talked about this, the the priest himself got up on the altar and became the sacrifice. Jesus became the sacrifice. So it wasn't that there was a priest and then there was a sacrifice. The priest himself became the sacrifice, which he talks about here, verse 17, the propitiation for the sins 
of the people. That is the sacrifice of sin, the sacrifice that took away the wrath of God. And he did that as he suffered and died on that cross for us. Verse 18 then talks about his suffering and his temptation. He himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. I think his help for us, we can equate to Psalm 8, God's care for us. Jesus helps us. He cares for us. He knows us. He came and lived for us and he died in, his, in our place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The answer to that question is Jesus. And not just in a trite Sunday school answer kind of way. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's because of Christ. It's because he took on flesh and lived and died for us. God loves us and cares for us. So do you want to see the majesty of God? Look at God's name. Look at his revelation of himself to us in his word. Do you want to see the majesty of God? Look at his creation. Look around you. Look at the moon and the stars and see his majesty. Do you want to see the majesty of God? Look at God's image bearers. Start with the little ones. Start with the children who can barely utter a word but can still babble and talk and say his name and have their praises, uh, his praises on their lips. And think about how those praises silence God's enemies and all who are opposed. And then look around. Look at one another. See the majesty of God in one another. Praise God for how he has created us in his image to be his image bearers and to reflect his glory in this world. Finally, do you want to see the majesty of God? Look at his son. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who died in our place, who lived for us, who came and fulfilled the promises of Psalm 8 and all the rest of the Psalms. Look to him to see the supreme display of God's majesty and stand in awe of who he is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder that you are majestic, that your name has been displayed, that your glory has been displayed in all the earth, that the heavens declare your glory, that your creation, that your people display your glory to the world around you. And God, ultimately, we see in your Son, we see your name, we see your glory displayed. God, may we look to him, may we trust him with our lives. May we be transformed by him. May we recapture the wonder that we may have lost. God, lift up our eyes from the mundane things 
from the things that have caused us to to lose a sense of, of who you are and of your majesty. Cause us to see you for who you are. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our last song, All Hail the Power of Jesus.